0: Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking to the new chair of the Royal College of GPs, Professor Camilla Hawthorne. Professor Hawthorne takes over as college chair from Professor Martin Marshall this weekend on the 19th of November, so this is one of her first interviews in her new role. In this upcoming conversation, we talk about why Professor Hawthorne decided to become her GP her key priorities as chair in her first year in the post, and what she hopes to achieve over her full three-year term. With a background in medical education, we also talk about how she feels medical education needs to change to develop the doctors of the future, one of her research areas of interest health inequalities, and whether she feels positive about the future of the profession. I'm really pleased to welcome onto the podcast the brand new chair of the Royal College of GPs, Professor Camilla Hawthorne. Professor Hawthorne has been a GP in South Wales for 34 years, having completed her GP training in Nottingham in 1988. She's also a Bevan Commissioner. Until recently, she was Professor and Head of Graduate Entry Medicine at the University of Swansea, a role she's being seconded from to take on the role of Chair of the RCGP. She's been heavily involved with the college for many years and was Vice Chair from 2015 to 2018 when she was responsible for professional development.
1: Thank you so much
0: for coming on the podcast, Camilla.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. I quite
0: like asking this question to lots of people when they come on the podcast. Why did you decide to become a GP?
1: Right. So I decided to become a GP because I met a really inspirational GP. He was a chap called Brendan Jacobs. He was 40 years older than me. And uh, for the first time, I met somebody who I thought, oh, I want to be like you. I saw for the first time the importance of general practice in communities. I saw how patients uh, found them incredibly stabilizing in their lives and terribly important. And as people that they would turn to for all sorts of things, not necessarily for medical problems and not necessarily for problems, really a very much loved advisor, really, that sometimes they just wanted to tell things to. And I suppose I realized that I'd got there when many years later, I was walking down an aisle in Sainsbury's when a young man detached himself from behind the meat counter and came rushing down the aisle saying, Dr. Hawthorne, Dr. Hawthorne. And I turned around and saw him and thought, oh dear, you know, what, what is it? And in fact, he said, all he said was, I've just passed my driving test. <laughs> And to me, that was just a massive encouragement that, you know, yeah, I really am a GP in this community and I belong in this community. So that's why.
0: Alongside, you know, your work as a GP in South Wales, you've also had a very active role in academia and in medical schools. As I mentioned at the start, you've been head of the Graduate Entry Medical Programme at Swansea University. What is it that drew you to becoming involved in medical education?
1: So like many GPs, I started off uh, teaching medical students in the practice um, I was an honorary lecturer in general practice in Cardiff um, back in 1996, 1997. would get a group of five students coming for a day. As time goes by, you find yourself leading all the other honorary GP honorary lecturers, of which there were about 16 of them in Cardiff. And then you find yourself leading year three in the medical school. And around about the same time, I'd also become an MRC GP examiner and was becoming quite involved in assessments and how assessments are organized and designed and delivered. And that it is surprisingly interesting, actually, because if somebody had said to me when I left medical school that I'd find all of this really interesting, I think I'd have laughed at them. But actually, it is really interesting. So my assessment expertise then meant that I became sub-dean for assessments at Cardiff. And then a few years later, The University of Surrey came calling and invited me to go over to help them design a new medical school. And the thought of starting with a blank sheet of paper was just so enticing because, of course, as a GP, I've come across so many things that I was completely unprepared for, had never had any training for, and would have been so useful to have had a bit more experience or expertise. So, yes, I went to Surrey between 2015 and 2018, then came back and was head of graduate entry medicine at Swansea. Since 2019.
0: You talked there about developing this new curriculum and a new medical school. What do you think makes a good doctor now and how do you think medical education and teaching needs to change to develop the doctors of the future?
1: We could write a book on this, but I'll try and be as brief as, <laughs> as brief as possible. Of course you need to know the medicine and that's all laid out in guidance from the GMC and all medical schools. Have to follow that guidance. But there is a lot of leeway to be individual and to be yourself um, in amongst all of that. There's something about developing students with the right ethos towards patients, to have a sense of service, to have a sense of caring. I do a whole two hour lecture on kindness and why that's important in medicine. And the professionalism side of things is becoming more and more important. And then having a really wider perspective, I think, for the next generation. Of doctors. We need people who understand artificial intelligence and digital technology, not people who go home and write software all night, but people who just know what its potential is and what its capabilities is. And that's one of the things I learned at Surrey University, which has got a big engineering component to the uni, um, and they've got an engineering for health research stream. And the engineers said to me, we can build you anything you like, but you've got to tell us what you need. So we need people who know what they need. So I think that's important. I think if COVID has taught us nothing but how important it is to have a global perspective, you know, that's just so important. And so the One Health theme is also very important to me. And again, I picked that up at Surrey because they have a new vet school and we were going to be working very closely with the vets. Sustainable healthcare that's everybody's business. Genomics and pharmacogenomics, There's all sorts of new things coming on now and then in amongst all of that, because sometimes the science goes so fast that the ethics doesn't keep up with it, but having a good grounding in medical ethics and how that applies to patients and how you put patients at the centre of everything you do is all terribly important.
0: In recent years, there's been kind of a lot of discussion about, you know, whether medical students are put off general practice as possible career options. I mean, this is something we've been writing about for quite a while they're put off in universities by the way specialists maybe talk about general practice and the role of a GP. Do you think that's still a problem? And what would you like to see medical schools doing to help increase exposure to general practice to medical students?
1: It is still happening, that's for certain. Certainly my Swansea medical students told me about it happening just recently. I think all of us, whether we're primary or secondary care doctors, need to learn to be kinder to each other. I think that's just a really, really important thing. And I think, you know, it'd be really useful if the GMC took it on as well. In fact, I was just discussing it with them only yesterday. I think that we are making headway. The college has been doing an awful lot of work on promoting general practice as a diverse and exciting career to students. It's got a really good link with many medical students right across the UK. And I think that... Many medical schools are also now introducing general practice in the very early years, in years one and two of their curricula. I know that we started that in Cardiff a few years back and certainly Swansea is the same. And I think that students being able to see the diversity of presentations and the complexity of presentations, that it isn't just about dealing with sore throats and ear infections all the time, also helps you know, from an early stage. And in fact, we have really enthusiastic GP societies in many medical schools that are a joy to talk to. Yeah, I've come across a few of them as well. I was just going to say that the numbers of GP trainees has gone up quite considerably in the last few years. With really high uptake, I think it's sort of 97% fill rate. So I think the enthusiasm is there for the next generation of GPs.
0: We move on to now your new role. You take over as chair of the college this weekend and you're taking over at what's an incredibly difficult time for general practice. You know, we're facing one of the worst workload and workforce crises that the profession has ever seen. What do you see as your key priorities as chair of the college in the coming year?
1: It's almost impossible not to start with needing to do whatever we can on the workload workforce crisis that GPs are facing. Because unless we can do Mm. something there, people just don't have the headspace to think about anything else, really. And it is really tough out there because the government keeps changing. And so we keep waiting to see what their health policy is going to be. I'm getting vibes, um, although perhaps not too surprisingly, that those 6,000 additional GPs promised may not be coming after all. But it has to be a priority. And really, we need to have more GPs on the ground. So if we're increasing the number of trainees, that's good. But people are leaving the profession faster than they're entering it. So retention strategies needs to be something that we really, really need to work with HEE and NHS England and the government you know and really need to push it i 'm also quite keen on the two year fellowships for first fives that are being introduced across the country because I think that that's an, a brilliant way of having a what, what i'm calling a three plus two training. so you do your three years on a VTS, get your MRCGP, and then you have two years and a fellowship role where you are supported, and you can really learn the nuts and bolts of how you work in a general practice. Either you know on on a sort of continuous basis rather than locoming, which is happening um, quite a lot. I think because a lot of people, when they finish training, are nervous. They don't really know what they're getting themselves into, they're worried that they'll join a practice and then everybody else will leave and they'll be the last man standing. And we need to be able to reassure new GPs into the profession that that's not necessarily the case and that we will support and encourage them to thrive. So I think that's those are all really important things that we need to do. I also think in terms of priorities, we need to spend more time as a college valuing our members, valuing our GPs. There are some incredibly um, innovative and hardworking people out there. Um, And they have been facing all sorts of problems, and many of them have found solutions, or at least to some of their problems. And we need to find ways to identify what they've done, applaud them, and share good practice so that other practices that are facing similar problems may be able to also learn from them rather than reinventing the wheel. Talking to members of council when I was campaigning for the election earlier this year, quite a lot of people said that we also need to try and shift our mindsets as a profession away from the victim mentality and more into what we do well as GPs and being proud of ourselves because that somehow that is worth much more than money sometimes on top of all of that then looking outside the profession i think that health inequalities are getting wider not smaller and they're rooted in social inequalities and we really need to be talking about that because as GPs We are a profession that's really close to our patients. We see them every day. We visit them in their homes. We know how they live. We know all sorts of things about them, not just whether they've passed their driving test, but lots of other things too. And if we cannot witness what's going on out there in the community and be their advocates, then nobody can. So we have a really important role there, as well as the sort of practical things that you can do within your practice to try and ensure that you're reaching the people who would otherwise be, be suffering more. And then finally, sustainable healthcare. It really is an emergency um that's facing the whole world. We it's everybody's business, including ours. So it needs to be part of what we do there too. But workload workforce comes first. Right. And uh, you know, would you say there are sort of
0: one or two things like at the end of your three year term, are there kind of one or two things you would have really liked to have been able to say, Yeah, I made a difference on on those ones?
1: Who knows what's going to happen in the next three years? You know, before (laughs) Martin, he, I'm sure, had no idea that COVID was going to come and hit us all between the eyes. So who knows? I would love to be able to say at the end of three years that the GP's workload has become more manageable than it is currently. And I'd also love to be able to say that we have succeeded in making the RCGP the professional home for all GPs. It becomes a no-brainer to want to be a member of this college, because it's got so much to offer. As regards the other priorities, well, they're pretty big priorities in health inequalities and sustainable health. But you know, you hope that you'd have gone somewhere down the road in working towards those goals as well.
0: We're talking here about workload being one of the biggest problems. And and that's the, the sense I get from every GP I talk to. But is there anything you think that could kind of be done in the short term to help alleviate some of the pressure on primary care at the minute?
1: Yes, there are a whole load of different things. I mean, primary care is just so vast, isn't it? So, there's lots of different areas that we could be working on to take the pressure off. I think we need clearer guidelines between primary and secondary care so that we get less work offloaded onto primary care. Uh, And it works in both directions, of course. So, this is about working cooperatively with our secondary care colleagues. We need better signposting for patients, better expectations so that you know, Sometimes it almost seems to be a knee-jerk reflex, oh, such, such and such has gone wrong, I must see the GP. The GP isn't always the right person that you need to go and see, so we need better signposting. We need to be encouraging and training our, our multidisciplinary teams better uh, because I think there's some work that's coming out of Manchester, um, Sharon Spooner's work, that's showing that um, having all these additional people in our teams is great, but they're still doing what they do rather than taking workload off us. So we need to think about that. There's promises from the government that they will help sort out the pensions issues that might improve retention for some people. And then, of course, the work that's being done on international medical graduate trainees and visas is also something that might be a sort of fairly quick win. There's a lot of talk now about QOF and whether the day of QOF is over and whether we should now be subsuming QOF funds into core funding Uh, And taking, again, some of the pressure off and some of the perverse incentives that Coif is causing so that we're actually now really looking at the patient who's in front of us as to what that patient needs rather than the box ticking exercises that sometimes we get forced into. So, yes, there are lots of things that we can be doing um, that will not only improve our own satisfaction that we're doing our jobs well for the patients, but also take the pressure off us.
0: One of the things I did want to ask you about, so it seems like we're about to enter another period of very constrained spending on public services. And obviously, this is coming at a time where, as we've talked about, demand on general practice is extremely high. In this sort of context, what do you think the prospects are of realistically growing the GP workforce?
1: So the workforce is growing in that the numbers of trainees is going up. And talking to Simon Gregory in Health Education England, I understand that the numbers are going up still further over the, or they're projected to go up. So yes, that's, I suppose that's a growth of sorts, but we've got to stop that drain coming out the other end, don't we? So that we can persuade doctors who are in their mid to late 50s, early 60s, when they're probably at the height of their powers not to leave the profession because um, it's a huge waste. It, it's very sad that people feel that they need to retire early. So, And again, there's lots of things that we could be doing in terms of retention and finding ways for people to stay on. What do
0: you think some of those things that they should be looking at sort of immediately? Because obviously retention seems to me to be the, the area where that's the quick win, really. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes a long time to train a GP, but if you can get GPs to stay for a few more years, that's a, a quick win. So what do you think we should yes. be doing to get people to stay longer?
1: In the practice I've I've been working in, actually prior to the one in Mountain Ash down in Butetown, we had two partners who were coming up to retirement and we were uh, very short of GPs in the end, we all agreed that the way that would work best for all of us, because they didn't want to stop completely, was that they would reduce their commitments but carry on working. And in fact, both of them carried on working for another four or five years each. And that made a huge difference. So some of it is about flexibility in partnerships as to how they treat older doctors who would otherwise go. Some of it is about things like working on the pensions issues Allowing maybe older doctors to mentor the younger ones, so they spend some of their time doing that. So again, we then encouraging the younger GPs to consider partnerships, to consider working in one place, and um, and enjoying what general practice is all about, which is about continuity of care and getting to know your patients well. You've mentioned health
0: inequalities. I know that's actually one of your sort of areas of research interest. You've done a lot of work around there. What role do you think GPs and their teams should be playing in tackling health inequalities? And do you think practices have enough time and enough support to kind of be able to take on this role?
1: I think a lot of GPs feel they don't have the headspace to do this work. Yeah. Having said that, there are a lot of GPs who have found the time because they feel it's such an important area that they should be involved in. You know, we were still, when I was working in Bute Town in Cardiff, which is one of the more deprived parts of Cardiff, we were still um, receiving quite a number of inquiries from young GPs who wanted to work in a deprived area. They wanted to work in places where there were social inequalities so that they could make a difference. Sadly, many of them didn't stay. Not because of the workload, but because of the funding for deprived practices in deprived areas, um, and it just wasn't good enough. That was just terribly disappointing, both for them as well as for us. So I think there is stuff that needs to be done there in terms of looking at how practice in deprived areas are funded to make it economically more viable for GPs. I think there is also, um, uh, you know, there are a lot of GPs who are involved in, for example, referring people to food banks or using food vouchers um, for people who are hit by cost of living crises. There is a great deal that you can do in your day to day practice, just being aware of what's happening in your patch, you can probably do a lot more than some centralised government can do for communities.
0: Do you see things like social prescribing having kind of an important role to play there? And what role do you see that happening in general practice?
1: Well, certainly, and it has been taking off, hasn't it, in the last five yeah. or six years um, to a quite a large extent. Um, I was just delighted when I discovered that we had a community garden just a couple of miles away from the practice. I'd always been a bit envious of those practices that had one of their own, but at least this way, I've got a sort of surrogate one that I've been referring patients to. And it's a beautiful place um, down by the river. You can go down and watch the kingfishers at lunchtime if you want to, as well as get involved in the garden, and it's got quite a lot of stress reduction, mindfulness, anxiety reducing courses for people. Um, so it's actually trying to deal with mental health issues and confidence issues as well as producing good produce. Uh, so I think these things are really, really worthwhile, really important. And one of the things I've discovered is that although I was sort of gaily suggesting it to many patients, I discovered in the end they didn't go until they'd actually got to know me quite well. And it was only once they got to know me and that relationship was flourishing that they then thought, oh, yeah, I might just go and do what she says. Let me just go and have a look. And then, of course, they loved it. It's a funny thing, just giving somebody a social prescription in itself is not
0: enough. No, that's interesting. You also touched on the issue of international medical graduates. I mean, and the college has been really vocal on the lack of support for international medical graduates who come through mm-hmm. GP training in the UK. The government has recently indicated that it's going to look into this idea of umbrella organisations sponsoring newly qualified IMG GPs. What's your view on that? And do you think that could solve the problem?
1: I think it could help. I'm not sure if it will solve it completely, but every little bit helps, doesn't it? I think it's very sad that we are training people and then losing them because they haven't got the visas to stay, um, spending a lot of money and effort. And it's very sad for them too because they want to stay. And in fact, the college is, certainly in Wales, is running a webinar in a couple of weeks' time on how, as a practice, you could sponsor an IMG trainee, and I've just persuaded my partners to come to it with me. So, um, yeah, I think it's very important. I understand that it's not as difficult as people fear, and I think if it means that doctors will stay and work in practices on a sustained way, that's absolutely what we need.
0: The other thing I wanted to ask you about this, almost half of doctors in GP training in 2021 22 IMGs. So obviously, they're going to become an increasingly important part of the GP workforce mm. going forward. Do you think the NHS is doing enough to support them more generally, You know, not just around visas? And what more do you think needs to be done? And what can the college do on this?
1: So I think the clear answer is no, we could always do more to support them. Just because they're now becoming such a large number isn't a good enough reason, you know, even if there were a few of them, we should be supporting them. Coming halfway across the world to work in a foreign country in a language that's not your mother tongue is an immensely brave thing to do. Many of them are the creme de la creme in their own countries. And certainly my experience of working with the ones I've met is that they're amazingly bright, they're very resourceful, they're really pretty resilient they want to belong, they're quite ambitious, and we should encourage that. That's not what we see though, when you look at the NHS in general, you see them filling the sort of Cinderella specialties where other people don't want to go, uh, working in the parts of the country where other people don't want to go. We're very lucky to have them. We have been for generations, actually. My parents were two of them back in the 1960s and 70s. But I think we need to do a great deal more I am very aware that as a woman of color, um, I'm often in a room where I'm the only person who's not white. I've been looking over my shoulder knowing for, for decades, knowing that there were plenty of others like me coming up behind and they just haven't been there. And it's only recently that I've started seeing them, but they're all 25, 30 years younger than me. So yes, I think there's an awful lot more that we could be doing to support people.
0: Yeah. yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Obviously, you're the first woman of colour to chair the Royal College of GPs. How significant is that for you personally, for the college, for the profession?
1: Most of the time, I don't think about what colour I am, to be honest. I'm just me. Yeah. And funnily enough, again, in Sainsbury's, you can see I spend a lot of time there. <laughs> I was talking to a GP colleague that I met. I had not seen him for a little while. And I told him that I was standing for chair of RCGP. And this was in Cardiff. And the interesting thing was that he didn't say, oh, Will they vote for you because you're not white and a woman? What he said was, "Will they vote for you because you're Welsh?" <laughs> so I think one just sort of has to take it all in, in some perspective. Um, in spite of what I've just said um, earlier, uh, no doubt some glass ceilings have been broken for women, uh, for women of colour, and for Welsh uh, working Welsh GPs. Um, Helen Stokes-Lampard, of course, is Welsh, but she wasn't working in Wales. I hope I was also elected because of who I am as a person. I like to think that I can speak truth to power and I do speak out if I see things that are not working and I do have ideas and I do work collaboratively and I like working with people and I love being a GP. So I hope I was being elected for all those reasons as well, not just because of the colour of my skin. But clearly it is important because for um, many others, particularly younger ones, they have said to me how important it is for them to see me there as chair and that it gives them hope and encouragement that they might do that one day. And of course, that's what role modelling is all about, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. And just one last question. Do you feel positive about the future of general practice? And if so, why?
1: Okay. It's a quick answer to that one, which is yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Um, And it's because I have always felt that patients could do no better than to have a good GP navigating through that jungle that is the NHS is just so difficult. Um, And so having a good GP is really, really important. And without it, the NHS will fail. So it's got to work. You've got to be positive. I know there are lots of problems, but we've all got to work together, Um, support each other and know that we're doing what's right for patients as well as for the profession. And what I'd really love to see is that, the, you know, the 2019 vision that was published by the college, a fit for the future GP, that's what we want to try and enact so that we can start really caring for patients the way we want to. That's lovely. Thank you so much, Camilla. Thank you. Thanks, Emma.
0: Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to Professor Hawthorne for taking the time to talk with me. If you're enjoying our podcast, please do think about giving us a rating and leaving a review, hopefully a nice one. And don't forget, you can subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. I'm back next week, so do join me then. In the meantime, you can keep up with all the latest news affecting primary care by visiting our website, gponline.com.